Hello and welcome to this podcast brought to you by Aram, which has been trusted for 25 years across the globe to improve collections and recoveries and Just, which delivers better debt outcomes. With me, your host, Steve Coppard. It's time to grab a cuppa as we give credit where credit's due to our expert guests. For this episode, I visited Devon Galani at Policy and Practice to find out more about their research, which says that there's £19 billion worth of unclaimed benefits every year, why that problem exists, how Policy and Practice is trying to move the needle on the issue, and why people working in financial services and collections and recoveries should care. Let's dive straight into the interview and find out more about Devon's expertise in this area. So, Devon. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on. I'm Devon. I'm the Director of Policy and Practice. We do three main things. We run one of the benefit calculators on gov.uk, the Better Off Calculator. It's used by about 2 million people each year to access over almost a billion pounds of benefits and unclaimed support. We run a platform called Lyft, primarily used by local authorities, now more and more in the commercial sector, which uses the administrative data they hold on their residents or their customers to proactively identify those that are struggling financially and, again, missing out on unclaimed benefits and support. So who do you need to help and how do you help them? And the third area is policy and research, where we do work using that data, using our, the insights from our clients to try and influence policy on the front line. We're based in Westminster to, to try and do that. So those are the three main areas of support. The backstory to policy and practice was way back in, I think, 2007. I was in my 20s, I was working for a startup and I got fired. So I had to claim benefits for the first time. And it was a really interesting experience. And I could use different words than interesting. Like generally, it was, <laughs> I came away feeling like that doesn't make sense. The system should not work in that way, you know. You go one place, they tell you to fill out some forms, then you have to go back and make a phone call, you go back to the office, then you get a job. Uh, I was pulling pints behind a bar and all of my benefits were taken, all of my, you know, every pound I earned was taken off in benefits. I was left no better off financially. And that was okay for me, but it's just sending out the wrong signals in the system. So that's how I got interested in policy. I ended up becoming part of the team that developed universal credit at the Center for Social Justice. I worked there for a number of years seeing that legislation through. But there I saw a big gap in, I think, how policies developed and how it's communicated to people. So when I left to set up policy and practice, it was fundamentally those two experiences I had at the start. It should be easier to access this support. We're called policy and practice because I think you can make a big difference on the ground. That's the practice side. It's why it's what gets us up in the morning. But it's actually limited often by what's possible at a policy level. So we're always trying to influence at policy level to create the opportunities for us to have a bigger impact on the ground. And actually, policymakers really value the fact that we work on the ground with clients. When I worked in policy many moons ago now, the best policy ideas came from people on the front line, which is something that we've always tried to bring together at policy and practice. So you mentioned it's what gets you up in the morning. Maybe I can flip that around and ask you with sort of the vast array of policy research that you do what was it that keeps you awake at the night at the moment yeah great question absolutely very well put i think fundamentally it's the cost of living crisis and the growing levels of inequality and probably lack of regard we have for it the extent to which it's hidden away some of the things i've been most struck by both in my time in the policy world and since running policy and practice is how sometimes policy is designed in such a way that it actually doesn't reach the people that need it the most i remember doing some work some of that proactive work to reach people who are missing out on benefits and support uh, one time it's around the benefit cap so households that are about to lose huge sums of money almost certainly put them into arrears almost certainly lead to them being evicted. Firstly, engagement was incredibly difficult. Secondly, when you did get that engagement, often the local authorities that we worked with to do that were struck by the level of need and deprivation. And the response was, we should have been helping these families much sooner. 
I think that is the thing that keeps me up most at night, the sense of actually you've got a group of people who do well in society and probably nothing's going to change that. And that's great, I guess. But equally, there's a group that aren't doing so well. And we really need to focus in on what we can do about that because really they should be empowered to be able to improve their own lives. And actually the circumstances that they're in can make it very hard for them to do that. And that's probably the biggest policy challenge we're facing right now. Something that struck me and it came out in your recommendations actually was the sheer, as you've just alluded to, the sheer variety of things that people have to apply for to be, in inverted commas, made whole. So you see council tax support, carers allows pension credit, child benefit, housing benefit, social tariffs, water, social tariffs of broadband, warm house, it goes on. And then you add a, a half a billion category called others as well. And I, I shudder to think how many things are crammed in there. Now, you're the expert here, Devon, so humour my ignorance, but wasn't wasn't universal credit supposed to bring all this stuff together and make it easier for people to control their own money? I don't know. I'm, I'm maybe being a bit simple about it. but No, it's a great question. I guess one of the reasons why we're called policy and practice is just trying to identify what happens to a good policy idea when you put it into practice. The report found there's £19 billion of support that goes unclaimed each year. That's always been a, a figure that in many respects has grown. But I mean, I, I think there are a couple of different points. So one is to answer the question, why don't we do it better? I think we could and we should. And it's interesting the extent to which it's actually legislative, regulatory and cultural barriers, more so than anything technical. I think we could go much further. We were on Moneybox the other week, and it's, it's a good segment that I hope, hope you'll, you'll link into. But we identified, proactively used data across London to identify over 11,000 pensioners who are eligible for but not claiming pension credit. They're missing out on between 3,500 and £4,000 a year. We wrote to all of them pretty much automatically. And over 2,500 of those pensioners went on to apply. When I was on the show, uh, Paul Lewis, one of his great questions was, one, what about the three quarters that didn't apply? And if the data tells you that they're eligible, why don't you just give it to them? And obviously it's not within my gift, but I think it's a great question to put to DWP. When you do put it to DWP as a have, it's something around the legislation doesn't allow them to use data from one place in another. You know, if HMRC data, you know, they're very protective around some of the data sets that they hold and sometimes with good reason. But I think generally we tend to put the blinders on, like in your field, in Aram's field, we can use this data to collect debt, chase people who are in arrears. For some reason we struggle when it's about helping them. Uh, and actually I think that is kind of much more of a cultural thing that you could change at a much faster pace than we are now. Just before we move on then, you, you mentioned sort of, you know, obviously I work in financial services and debt management. And remembering that our audience is largely made up of professionals from that background. What What's in this conversation from for them? I mean, just leaving the ethical bit to one side, because I think we all understand that really well. But why, why should why should they care about the benefit system? Yeah, I mean, I think there's one very obvious reason, right? So if you're trying to collect from people who are missing out on unclaimed support, you're going to find it harder than if they're actually accessing that support already. So it's incredible the impact that I think we've been able to have for collection teams, creditors who have struggled to engage residents when you talk to them about you're in debt, talk to us about it. If you say you're missing out on support worth £400, £4,000 a year, £40 a month, however you want to frame it, the level of engagement you get jumps up by a factor of three or four, right? So it really helps with engagement. Secondly, obviously, if you're putting more money in people's pockets, you're putting them in a position where they can actually afford to pay you back. And thirdly, it's not just about you. So the kind of infrastructure we're trying to leave behind is often people owe obviously money to more than one creditor at a time. If we can leave the infrastructure whereby, you know, a water company they're engaging with is helping them to access council tax support or energy support, that means they're much like much less likely to get into energy debt or more likely to pay back their council tax debt or their council tax bill than they would have done otherwise. I think it's a real no-brainer, particularly for the collection sector, because then you're dealing with people who are already in that kind of 
position where i'd like to see it is before that sector so they don't get into that position in the first place obviously i'm, I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate here because I, I, these are the types of things that I, I think is useful for the audience to hear but you, you'll know that back in my, my cabinet office days we did a, a digital economy acts pilot we shared data across 29 local authorities and um, hmrc so we got income data and what we looked at devon was was cases that had already been for enforcement two or three times and, and were effectively sitting there waiting to be written off mm. and you you know that local authorities don't like writing off debt. Sure. So we went through and, and actually wrote to 9,900 people. And we said, we believe that you work for, and so we're going to go and ask your, your employer to deduct the money from your, your wages. Now, on the one hand, quite a lot of people making significant payments. You were talking about households that were on over £100,000 who were just belligerently not paying their council tax. But the other thing it highlighted was over a thousand families, so 10% of that sample, a thousand families who were entitled to council tax support. And effectively, the council tax support, along with some discretionary housing payments now that they found those people, more or less wiped out the entirety of the debt. Mm. Now, I find that quite poetic that the, the council has put an awful lot of effort into trying to recover money that was actually sitting in a different part of the council. Yeah. And it's, it's more like then becomes a paper debt that they can pay themselves through the customer. Yeah. So with that in mind, I mean, how, how much importance, what, what, what can you talk to about data? And is, is it about buying different data or making better use of the data that's already available in the public domain? I think it's having access to the right data and being able to use it in the right way. So um, we talk about identify, engage, and track. So with local authorities, actually, we help them to design council tax support schemes. We run analyses on each one of their residents. And you know the identify piece is, is critical. Let's identify those households that are struggling to pay, often through no fault of their own, actually. So if you look at the what keeps me up at night, it's the gaps that have appeared in the social security system. So if you're being hit by the benefit cap, that's a change in policy you had no control over under occupation charge. If your rent's gone up, but the local housing allowance support that you get hasn't gone up, you're now in a debt position, you're in a arrears position that you've done nothing, nothing's changed for you, but now you're in this debt position. So identifying those households who are struggling to pay for those kinds of reasons, so where there's overlaps with other things that have happened that have put them in this position, is one way to do that. The engagement piece I've talked about, because actually if they're missing out on unclaimed support, if they don't know about discretionary housing payments, if they don't know that you can claim council tax support, then you need to raise their awareness of it. All right, it helps with engagement, but that kind of awareness piece is one reason why there's so much support, 19 billion that goes unclaimed. And track to see what impact that had. So you were able to do that with the HMRC pilot. But actually for the people listening, to this podcast, it's important that you can see the impact you've had. And that's something we've always done at Policy and Practice. So if you increase someone's income, does that lead to lower arrears down the line? Does that lead to a more stable housing situation, right? Versus other households that perhaps didn't engage, didn't get that support. Does it have a material impact on your likelihood to stay in your home? All of these things cost the council, they cost clients. More importantly, they cost society a huge amount of money later on down the line. If you can get that support in place up front, it makes a massive difference. This is a magic bullet then, right? If we can find out who the 19 billion should go to and, and get them to claim it, have, have we fixed the problem? I think we've fixed one problem, which is streamlining access to support. So I just fundamentally, regardless of how generous or not the social security system is, you shouldn't have to wade through it. 
to get access to the support you're entitled to, you're eligible for. In many ways, I don't think you should have to apply for different things, right? A lot of these different organizations are doing multiple identity checks, multiple bits of verification that actually, you know, it's the same individual dealing with multiple organizations. Is there not a better way of sharing that information? So that's kind of one of the projects policy and practice is working on. We've been able to help one water company, actually three water companies now, take the data that goes into our better off calculator and port that directly into their billing system. So it's gone from two months to get a social tariff applied to like two minutes. It's been one of the most powerful projects I think we've had the pleasure to work on. Those things streamline access to support. The problem it doesn't solve is gaps in the social security system itself. Like I say, it is what keeps me up at night when you've got benefits overall of 7.5% less generous in real terms than they were a decade ago. And that's with inflation increases year on year. So they buy 7.5% less. More importantly, some households within that group have far, far less. And the reason I think that's really important, as I said, is if you're in that position, it becomes very difficult for you just to get by rather than be empowered to move on and progress your own life because you're you're just trying to get by day to day. And I think there's a huge amount of human potential that's lost. And I know we've spoken about this before, Steve, we've each come from places where I think our families were in that position. And if you can do that for a given family, their potential and prospects go up so much more. And if you don't, actually, it really is such a waste of such, you know, so much left behind by society. So I think, you know, for each client we work with, each individual customer of theirs that we're able to support, it's the difference you're making to that person's life that makes the biggest difference but like you say the 19 billion is is the difference we're making i worry about the gaps in support we're leaving behind there's a report a little while ago that found that gap to be over 38 billion pounds in terms of just what's happened to social security over the last decade the poverty gap i think they called it you need to get policy right in the first place what we're able to influence today is the practice and you need both working together I, I saw that report. It said in there that at 38 billion, it's not just cash. They said cash is a blunt tool. It's a combination, I think, as you said now, of cash, employment, reduced costs, reduced debt, greater family stability, higher productivity. And I, I guess that talks to sort of the, the, the pathways into poverty. Yeah. Some of our research work talked a bit about our policy and research arm is about drawing those links between people who are in debt, people who are struggling to get by day to day, and how that relates to these other social problems consequences. So we've run a couple of projects where we've linked that data to other outcomes. I mentioned housing and debt before, but we're actually looking at kind of social care. What are the cost implications for social care, both children and adults? What are the implications for the health service? We've got a project with the Health Foundation to look at that. And actually, when you can draw these differences, people that are making a difference to people's lives by intervening early or, or getting support to people who are missing out and need it can more easily quantify the difference they're making to society. And that actually has a big impact on how the company feels about the work that it's doing. I think there's a there's a huge amount to do. You can go very much further than we are right now with the data we've got at our disposal. Like I said, will and culture is a big part of the problem, but actually you do also need to change policy. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about today, and I'll, I'll, I'll reference a, a Center for Social Justice report from a, a few years ago in which it, it quoted somebody who just applied for, for universal credit and found out that they had a legacy tax credit debt. And I think the quote was, 10 years of striving to get your shit together and all of a sudden you're back where you started. The automatic deductions thing has always puzzled me a little bit because in the financial services world, in, in, in consumer credit lending and in recovery, you have to check affordability. You have to make sure that repayments are affordable. And yet with automatic deductions, it goes as a, as a percentage. I don't know. Have you, have you got, have you got any thoughts on that? I'm sure you have got thoughts on it, but it'd be interesting to, to hear. Yeah, I'm tempted to flip it around, given you spend a lot of time in central government yourself on, <laughs> on, on some of these things. But um, I'll be generous and, and kind of give you my, 
just my straight answer. I think you know, a lot of this would come down to a government or a policy perspective. The problem I have with tax credit debts moving on to UC is when they're old and it's very hard to track. Like you don't really have a sense. They couldn't evidence the fact that you generated this tax credit debt too easily. They couldn't give you an itemized statement. They just have it on the system and they tell you that's what you owe them. I think that inability to go back is a real problem. I think where government would probably hold the line, certainly from the conversations I've had, is where, you know, arguably they've overpaid tax credits this year. They would take it back if the tax credit system was still in place. They're using UC to do that. So I guess current year debts is probably like the, there's, there's rhyme to that reason. I think the historical debt piece is, is terrible, but more generally on, on deductions as well. A bigger problem, and you mentioned this in the HMRC pilot earlier, is when people just have money taken out of their UC for sanctions or for you know direct payments to their water company or their energy company and these attachment of earnings things, I can understand why they're in place, but they leave individuals with very little to get by. And when I talked about the work our clients see on the front line is the level of destitution it, it reduces people to. That's partly down to the generosity of social security. But I do think people should have some choice over how they deal with their debt and actually getting debt advice to them much earlier, running those affordability checks. They're really good opportunities to improve engagement. I think, you know, I think government should hold itself to the same standard it holds other sectors too. So thinking about some of the complications that we, we've spoken about today, and I, I, I saw recently that there was talk of doing pilots on universal basic income, and I, I read it and I scratched my head a little bit and I put it in the next time I talk to Devon pile. All right. So now is the next time I'm talking to Devon. So let, let me put you on the spot a little bit. Universal basic income, can you explain what it is, why we, why we would want it or not want it? Universal basic income basically says everyone gets a similar amount of support, regardless of who they are, and you know tax rates go up to pay for it for everyone. So everyone has the minimum amount they need to get by and to live on. And then you don't have to do anything. You apply it as effectively a negative income tax that kind of takes it away, that gives it to you, and then normal income tax that takes it away as you earn more. I think it's, a, it's an attractive idea. The biggest policy problems around it are different people still need different amounts. If you think about people who live in London versus people who live in you know, another less well-off part, less costly part of the country, you have to figure out how to deal with those differentials. I think there is some opportunity for it though. You, know, you mentioned why hasn't universal credit brought everything in? I think some of those barriers to that are largely on the policy side. Universal credit could do a lot more heavy lifting in terms of streamlining access to support. And if you didn't want to make it more universal, you'd do two things. You'd reduce the savings limit or eliminate the savings limit. So it takes into account the savings you've got, but you're still eligible. It's, there's not a sharp cutoff if you've got savings above 16,000, which I think is actually quite unfair. You know, if you're renting with two kids in London and you've got savings of 17,000, UC could be supporting your rent, but all of a sudden it cuts off versus if you have less than 16,000 in savings. It's a big, makes a big difference. It sets out the wrong message. So effectively, either either time limit, time limited UC or, um, or just enabling access to UC without a savings limit would be a really good way to get pretty close to the universe universal basic income without a great deal of extra effort. But again, government and society have to want to go there. So just finally then, are there any other big policy areas that you're working on apart from benefits? Yeah, I think we're trying to get support to people as early as possible. Sometimes that's financial support and mainly that's what we do. The other area are things like in areas of social care or safeguarding. So we've just launched a new service that links data across adults, children's fire, police and health automatically on a daily basis. So an individual on the front line with responsibility for safeguarding can see if someone that they're concerned about has had contact with those other services recently. 
I think it's a hugely powerful service because in every serious case review for a child that has died in tragic circumstances, better information sharing is one of the things that comes out as where they could have made a difference. And actually, the technology is really built on our experience of working with so many local authorities, so many other partners, and being able to put their data together. So it's really building on that capabilities we've developed. But again, it's solving a real problem at the same time. Devon Galani, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the podcast and I hope you found it as informative as I did. If you want to hear more great content from Aram and Just, then please subscribe on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts or follow us on LinkedIn so that we can let you know when the next one is out. Until then, if you'd like to discuss any of the issues that were raised in this podcast, then please get in touch with me either on LinkedIn or drop me an email to stephen.coppard at aram.co.uk. Once again, my thanks to Devon Galani and Policy and Practice for investing the time to talk to us and it's goodbye for now.